Okay, y'all. The emotions, they're happening this morning. <laughs> How are you? You guys okay? I'm okay. I'm gonna be okay. That song, are you kidding me, you guys? Oh, my goodness. Oh, good morning. I really am gonna be okay. Even if I just keep crying, it's okay. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Um, did I say my name already? It's in my notes, because I don't want to forget. So I'm Nelson, just forgetting. I am forgetting. Shouts to the live stream folk. Good to see you, kind of. And good to be seen by you. Um, also, so good to be with those of you who were able to be at our church retreat last weekend out at Stillwood. What a time we had. What a gift it was uh, to share meals around tables, to share laughter, to share recreation, chats by the fire to be together in nature, uh, to look at the birds or the stars, to move our bodies, whether that was hiking up Teapot Hill across treacherous streams, or playing gaga ball, or kickball, or on the dance floor after SNL. What a gift it was to worship God together, to sing and converse and listen and respond to scripture to see people who have joined Artisan over the last year, two years, to build connection with those who have been around a little bit longer. Too many good things to name, but I just wanted to share how much I loved being in that setting with you all, and to express hope that those who weren't able to join us might be able to do so next year. Okay. If you are brand new to Artisan, something you need to know is that this year we're in a bit, engaging in a bit of an experiment. We're using something called the lectionary to guide our preaching and our teaching. The lectionary is a collection of scriptural texts woven together that guide us through the seasons of the liturgical calendar, also known as the church year. And one of the main reasons we're doing this is because we want to be intentional about keeping Jesus at the center of our shared life. And I'm convinced that one of the best ways to practice the way of Jesus together is to practice liturgical time. So this is what we're doing this year. And today we find ourselves in the fourth Sunday of Eastertide. And today the lectionary has given us opportunity to explore what may well be the most ignored resurrection story in scripture. It's found in the book of Acts, chapter 9. We're going to hear it in a moment, but first a quick sidebar. Now, churches and traditions that follow the lectionary down to the letter. Has anyone grown up in one of those traditions? All four gospel lessons in, in a single Sunday? Just curious. Anyone that grew up in a, in a strongly liturgical kind of calendar? We have no one in our midst today? That is amazing. Okay, usually there's at least a handful. So I'm glad I'm sharing this sidebar. Usually there are four texts. We read two, and we usually read only two. Typically the Psalm and the Gospel reading, which Peter offered for us today. So even though I knew that we would be anchoring in Acts 9, which is one of the other two, I wanted to stick with those two for us to hear, because the, those are just such beautiful reminders of God's shepherding care for God's people. And these songs have just sort of dovetailed so beautifully, as they often do. I'm not surprised by this, but it just hits in a new level sometimes. I love that Psalm 23 and John 10 are read during Eastertide. And then there's this little story from Acts 9. I invite us to listen to the text from the First Nations Version, an indigenous translation of the New Testament, partly because a fresh translation almost always helps us hear the text in a fresh way, 
partly because the decolonizing work we need to do involves the intentional amplification of marginalized voices, particularly in the field of biblical studies and theology, where those voices have often been silenced. But also, because one of the best gifts of the First Nations version is that it always pays attention to the meaning of names, of people, of places, and of the triune God. And names mean a lot in this story, as we'll see. Now, I'm guessing not a lot of us have read the First Nations version before. It just came out in the past year or so. And it's just been the translation of the New Testament thus far. So I'm gonna put the text up on screen so that you can see how the translation council uses brackets within the text to indicate which name refers to whom or what or where. And I'm only gonna read the bracketed names the first time they happen because otherwise it gets a little bit clunky when we're doing it orally. So reading from Acts 9, beginning at verse 36. Now in the nearby village of Beauty, Joppa, there lived a follower of Creator Sets Free, Jesus, whose name was Dear Woman, Tabitha, which is translated into our tribal language as Dear Eyes, Dorcas. She was a doer of many good deeds and always gave to the ones who had little. During the time that stands on the rock, Peter was in almond tree, Lydda. She became ill and crossed over to death. So they ceremonially washed her body and laid her in an upstairs room. Since almond tree is near to village of beauty, the followers there sent two men to stands on the rock, begging him to come right away. Stands on the rock got right up and went with the men. When they arrived, they took him to where her body lay in the upstairs room. The widows came and stood next to him. The tears rolled down their faces as they showed him the beautiful garments dear eyes had made when she was with them. Stands on the rock sent them all outside. He then fell to his knees and sent his voice to the great spirit. After he prayed, he turned toward the dead body of the woman. Dear woman, he said to her, get up. She opened her eyes, and when she saw stands on the rock, she sat up. He reached out his hand to her and helped her up. He then called all the holy ones and the widows and stood her before them. She was alive. Word of this spread throughout all of Village of Beauty, and many put their trust in our honored chief, Creator Sets Free. Then, Stands on the Rock stayed a good number of days in Village of Beauty, in the home of Hearing Man, Simon, a tanner of leather. For whom is this the first time you've heard or read First Nations Version? A good number. It's quite an experience, isn't it? I just want to give us a quick minute to just let it, just sit with this in silence, to let it sink in a little deeper into our beings, even though what may also be surfacing is some wonderings about what just happened. Let's just have a few minutes, or just not minutes, just a few seconds of silence.
Barbara Brown Taylor, reflecting on Eastertide, wrote this. During Easter season, resurrection is high on the list of things that unite us. Whatever we make of it, whatever questions we continue to have about it, this up from the grave thing, this love stronger than death thing is central to Christian faith. Not just that it happened to Jesus, but that because of him, it is in our futures too. We look for resurrection, for the resurrection of the dead, we say, when we say the creed and the life of the world to come. If nothing else, this affirmation means that we expect our life-giving community with God and one another in this world to continue in the next. We trust that there's no expiration date on it, that it is durable, not disposable, that the God who made us once can make us again in any world of God's own choosing. Oh, BBT, I so love that. <clears throat> there's no expiry on resurrection life, on God's deep abiding shalom, on the wholeness that we can experience in relationship to God and each other. The living God made us once. God can make us again. Can I get an amen? Let's hold that as we walk through this text. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone who can prove resurrection. I also don't know a soul who could disprove it either. I have a hard time even trying to explain it. So why is it then that we continue to affirm and trust and live into something that can't be proven or explained? I tend to uh, lean, these days especially, letting other people do most of the talking when it comes to the life of the world to come. We imagine it so differently. And because there's no video evidence, no one knows for sure. Jesus himself was characteristically vague on the subject after that first resurrection day. All we really have in the gospels is a few crossing over stories. That and the immense freedom to decide as individuals and as a community together what to do with them. I mentioned earlier that this is possibly the most ignored resurrection story in the Bible. Why did I say that? Well, because we all know the Jesus story. Most of us know about Lazarus. But what about Lady Lazarus? Tabitha or Dorcas, depending on whether you speak Aramaic or Greek, raised from the dead by Peter and restored to the community of widows who lived in a village called Beauty who could not imagine life without her. Tabitha's name means gazelle, which as we heard, the First Nations Council rendered as dear woman or dear eyes, depending again on the Aramaic or, or uh, Greek translations. So what do we all know about Tabitha's story? We have to wonder why it has received such small press. Is it because it appears in Acts and not the Gospels? Is it because Peter did the raising and not Jesus? Is it because Tabitha was a she and not a he? Tabitha was a disciple, Luke tells us, using the feminine form of the word that shows up only here in the New Testament. That's worth noting. And even so, Dr. Will Gaffney reminds us that Tabitha should not be considered the only disciple who was female. It's worth asking 
why more women who follow Jesus in scripture were not afforded the descriptor of disciple. Especially in Acts, where women, though often sidelined in the text itself, were evidently at the center of this early Jesus movement. In her brilliant literary and theological introduction to the whole Bible, called Holy Imagination, Judy Fentress Williams says, in the book of Acts, the representation of women can be used to measure the extent to which the early church was countercultural or fell prey to the patterns of patriarchy of the external society and culture of the time. The early Christian community was in many ways a countercultural witness to the alternative kingdom of heaven that opposed the patterns of the Roman Empire. Then she gives examples right from the text. We're not gonna look at all of the references, but I'll include them in the slides in case anyone wants to check them out later. Ventress Williams continues then. Material goods were shared and women had more equality. The text confirms the presence of women in the house on Pentecost, so we know they were recipients of the Holy Spirit. Women were teachers and patrons. They offered hospitality and exercised prophetic gifts. And yet, women in the book of Acts remain for the most part in obscurity, leading scholars to conclude that by the time Acts was written, the egalitarian vision that characterized the early church was already being subsumed by the culture of the Greco-Roman world. The Edenic moment of full humanity for all disciples of Christ gave way to a post-Edenic world weighed down by hierarchy and difference. Weighed down indeed, oof. Friends, I feel increasingly done living in such a world. In a sermon that already has way too many quotes, <laughs> I need to lay one more on you from Miss Ventress Williams. Because we've got to hear and own this stuff if we're to keep moving forward and co-shaping with Jesus a world where we're committed to learning and growing what it means to love one another across our differences. She writes, sometimes history is less about the facts and more about a way, the way a story is told. Right? In the case of the portrayal of women, the story is told in a way that tells about the moment the church was infiltrated by the brokenness of patriarchy. The portrayal of women in Acts then is not a historically accurate account of women's roles in the church, but it is a painfully honest portrayal of the distance between that Pentecost community and the institutional church. So given all this then, one of the most immediate and practical ways we can reimagine a more equitable world, a more equitable church, it's by making sure we know Tabitha's name, her names, that we remember she and the other unnamed women disciples, that we tell her story. So what do we learn about Tabitha from the text? She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. The fact that she always gave to those who had little likely meant that she was a woman of means herself. And as Will Gaffney wisely noted, Tabitha stands out as neither wife, nor widow, nor mother. She is a disciple of Jesus Christ and named without regard to patriarchy or patrimony. So the congregation in Joppa had lost one of their pillars 
the village of beauty became a little less beautiful. Dear Eyes was a beloved saint, and now she was gone. But she was fortunate enough in life to be surrounded by dear friends. And these friends were so reluctant to let her go that they immediately sent for the most powerful help they could think of. Who's close by? Peter. 11 miles. Can we get Peter? He just healed a paralyzed man in the village of beauty nearby. Or sorry, in Almond Tree. Please come at once. Two of Gazelle's friends begged him. So stands on the rock, got up and went with them. So again, 11 miles from Lydda to Joppa. So that would take about four hours on foot one way with no stops. So they couldn't just text him and say, come on over. So this is a round trip situation. And likely there were stops for meal, whatever it happened to be. So let's figure at least a journey of 10 hours. But it's kind of hard to know what the hurry was about. She was dead. Her friends had already washed her body and, and laid it out. Well, Luke tells us that when Peter got there to see for himself, the same two disciples who had fetched him from Joppa took him upstairs where he was met by a room full of weeping widows. Not a word was spoken that we know of. They just cried and they showed him the gorgeous garments Tabitha had made when she was with them. The first thing he did was send all the crying women outside, which meant no one else was in the room where it happened. The Hamilton reference was just sitting there, you guys. It's low-hanging fruit. I couldn't help it. Thanks, Tash. It's for you. So stands on the rock, falls to his knees, and he prays. We don't know what he prayed, but when he finished, Luke says, Peter turned toward the body. Not Tabitha, but the body, and said, Tabitha, get up, which isn't far from Lazarus. Come out. And Lady Lazarus did. Her dear eyes opened. She saw stands on the rock, and she sat up. I love what Dr. Willie Jennings said about this moment. He said, it's no accident that the first disciple to have this little taste of the resurrection is a woman because it was a woman who gave birth to the resurrection. Come on. <laughs> Whoo, Willie Jennings. Then Peter offered his hand and helped her up almost as if he just talked her out of buying a, shoes, a, pair, uh, buying a pair of shoes that was too tight for her. Once the saints and widows saw her alive, the story spread like wildfire and a lot more people put their trust in Jesus. What a story. What a good one. What a weird one. There are details missing that ought to be there. But by the same token, there are several details in the story that shouldn't be there. I have questions. Why did Peter not invoke the name of Jesus when he told Tabitha to get up? He did it when he healed the paralyzed man in Joppa. Jesus Christ heals you, he told the man. Get up and make your bed. Why did he clear the room before he healed her? Isn't the whole point of a miracle to have as many witnesses as possible who can testify to it? We might also rightly wonder about the mention of Tabitha's good deeds. Isn't it a mistake to mention that she was such a charitable human? There's nothing like that in the Lazarus story or that of the paralyzed man. The only thing those two had going for them is that they were beyond all human help. Not that they were fantastic helpers themselves. So why mention good deeds at all? Is Luke honestly wanting people to believe Tabitha sowed her way into resurrection? 
No answers are given in the text about these questions. I don't know if I have the right questions, but I have them. But I wonder how much of a problem these theological anomalies are for most folks. I really wonder if the bigger problem for many of us is we find ourselves unable to reproduce this miracle, regardless of where we are theologically. We too pray, don't we, for people we love who are dying, if not dead. We too call on the most powerful help we can imagine, but their prayers don't work like Peter's did. Our beloved's dear eyes remain closed. Her too tight shoes stay on her feet while their garments are stained with tears. Barbara Brown Taylor tells a story I wanna share with you using her words. She says, I have a friend who reports miraculous things to me from time to time. No resurrections yet, unless you count the spiritual kind, but other things that defy the usual laws of nature, lights that appear in the dark, people who get well without doctors, turtles that say significant things to them. I try to listen as best I can, but last time I got irritated. So what, I said. I'm sure that's wonderful for you, but if it doesn't happen to everybody, then why does it matter? What is it supposed to mean? My friend said, it, it means you don't know how things work. You think you know, but you don't. Huh, I said. Like when Jesus came back from the dead, he said, people thought they knew how things worked, then they found out they didn't. That's an important thing to know. He had a point. I mean, I don't know how a fig tree sets its buds while there's still snow on the ground. I don't know how a setting hen turns an egg into a chick. I don't even know how a fax machine works. This is from about 12 years ago. <laughs> I know these things work, but I don't know how. So why can't there be other things at work between this world and the next that I don't understand? There's a 15th century German saint called Nicholas of Cusa who wrote a book called On Learned Ignorance. He says there's at least three kinds of ignorance that show up in those who seek God. First, there's those who don't, do not know that they don't know. With me? Don't know that they don't know. Then, there are those who know they don't know, but think they ought to know. Finally, there are those who know that they do not know, but who receive this learned ignorance as a gift from God. Why? Because it relieves them of the burden of thinking they have to know all that God knows. Because it frees them to live in a state of perpetual wonder. Because it saves them from having to believe that they, those they love, are definitely disqualified from new life on the basis that they know how things work and life like that is just not possible. Nicholas calls this high-level ignorance. These are the people who don't know where the wind comes from or where it goes, but who can live with that because they trust that God does. It seems to me that Tabitha's friends were that kind of people. If they weren't, they wouldn't have sent for Peter in the first place. 
The fact that they did call him, call on him meant that they were willing to let go of what they thought were the rules about life and death. And so when their friends showed up alive again, their high level ignorance was reinforced in the best possible way. We have no idea how things work. Thanks be to God. But let's imagine for a moment that Peter's prayers didn't work the way Luke tells us they did. That Peter emerged from the room with his head lowered and said, I'm so sorry, she's gone. I can't help but wonder if that same learned ignorance wouldn't have kicked in anyway. I wonder if they would have said to themselves and one another, we sure don't know how things work, but God does. So let's get on with doing what we know to do. Peter needs some food. We need to say our prayers. And then let's stay up all night telling stories about Tabitha. And we'll keep doing these things while we wait to see who God will raise up from among us next. I think Tabitha's community is one that embodied high-level learned ignorance, to be sure. Another word for which is resurrection hope. They had reason to put their trust in a God who blows the doors off the categories of birth and life and death. We, by contrast, do not hold the keys to such mysteries. We do not know God's will as it pertains to Tabitha or to our loved ones. One writer said, the helpful distinction is between praying for a cure which seems to dictate to God our desired outcome and praying for healing, which can come in a hundred unexpected ways. God's spirit will intervene on behalf of our prayers, yet the healing that comes often surprises us and causes us to catch our collective breath. The congregation at Joppa was vulnerable, but they stood together using every tool and spiritual resource they had at their disposal, this disposal. Weeping together, hoping together, celebrating together. This is a community that wasn't afraid to knit themselves into the fabric of each other's lives. And because of that, they couldn't remain unchanged. These are rare marks in 21st century churches. So we turn the question on ourselves, how might God be inviting us to be a community of healing, of resurrection, hope, like the one in the village of beauty? I don't know all of what it'll look like, but I'm seeing it. It's happening. It's beautiful to witness people taking steps out of individualism, which seems so prevalent and pervasive, into interdependence. Joining groups and teams, just forming their own after a Sunday gathering. Being intentional about reaching out and checking in. Making an effort to get out to a retreat. Asking for what we need and offering what we can. Making and delivering meals to those who aren't doing well. Or to just those that are because. Being present on a Sunday to pray, to worship, to dine together at the Lord's table. So, loves, may the spirit of Jesus help us continue to focus all our spiritual energy on life and healing 
and wholeness. May we keep learning what it means to amplify the voices and tell the stories of disciples who were women. Named, unnamed, sung, unsung, historic, contemporary. May we sit at their feet as they sit at the feet of the resurrected Christ. And may we together live into the hope of learned ignorance, knowing we don't always know how things work and being okay with that joyfully trusting that God does. Amen.